We weren't selling an awful lot at at, at a kind of a, a negative margin. We were doing an awful lot of business, essentially just giving the customer the price that the supplier was giving us. But a lot of that was we didn't have buying power at that stage. You know, so we weren't at that point. You're still a small company. You want to be able to deliver this better experience for the customer but also you need to make sure that your price is competitive and in order to do those things sometimes we had to make some commercial decisions around doing that because before prices started shooting up and material became so um, scarce actually in the in the front half of 2020 there was a huge material surplus in the uk and we were actually finding orders for a lot of companies that they weren't finding from from anywhere else so i think we really demonstrated the value proposition in 2020 this podcast seven Second series, Carl Evans, returning guest. Yeah, he's the what, first. What? He's the first person to have a uh, two point Yeah, that's right. F season two. Um, what do you, What do you remember of that pod? Because I've recorded it quite a while ago now. Yeah, I mean, all of these platforms. Obviously, they're like they're always come with like mixed emotions, don't they? There's people who feel they need it. There's people like Carl who feels like the industry needs it. And then you've got the kind of other people who feel like, well, actually, I don't think that's really the way the industry goes. I think people speaking to people and being able to have a report and all that kind of stuff. In essence, I think you need both. You know, I've, that's what I think. And I think for Carl in this venture um, with Steel Scout is a case of just, you know, a big, a big company who goes into something and eventually they look at it and things change internally and, and projects get cut. You see it all the time. And unfortunately, this is a, a sad, sad thing for that. That that's just, he's just been there and it just, they've just had to cut it. Yeah, I think that was what I kind of, when I was editing this one up, um, I couldn't quite remember all of the areas that we spoke about for obvious reasons. But that was my overwhelming kind of output from this. When you listen to this part, it's kind of, they put so much work in, so much money, so much effort. And then effectively, a change round within a business meant that it just got cut for no other reason than there was just a change within the group. So, you know, take a listen, see what you think. I think this is a really interesting pod. And I think for anyone that's looking to build an e-commerce platform um, on any scale, small or or large, um, I think this gives some really good insight into where the market was a few years ago um, and really where things are going to be going forward. Hey guys, Pete and Mike. The metal guys. We're um, we're back with you're the first repeat guest on the show. How do you feel, Carl? Oh, I'm honoured. <laughs> should, should, should be thanks mate. For, <laughs> thanks for inviting me again. Um, Carl was on the first well first series of the podcast. Um, you were working with Steelscape, which was the tech arm, not necessarily the tech arm, but a tech part of the Tata operation. Um, unfortunately, just after we released that podcast who's kind of changed with that business and Tata decided to pull the plug um, on that bit of the business so we decided it was good to get you back in um, and have a conversation about that because obviously e-commerce is a big part of the metal and engineering sector um, and we just like your kind of viewpoints on some of the highs and lows of what really happened at Steelscope so you know for those for maybe people that, that didn't listen to the first pod if we just get a little bit of a background of you know what Steel Scout was, what was the concept and what were the plans? So Steel Scout was a digital e-commerce 
trading platform uh, or a couple of different platforms. So the original Steel Scout pro- uh, product was a um, was an online steel quoting tool that both steel buyers and sellers could use uh, in order to list requirements and and find and find prices and compare quotes uh, etc so essentially a quoting platform and we had another business then called metal hub which later became steel scout direct which was essentially a online comparison site so nothing not too dissimilar to a compare the market but for steel and other another metal product so we got that business going back in you know, both of those businesses going back in 2017. And over the course of the three-year period, uh, we grew the company within the UK, got a pretty decent footprint, I think, and, and, and good traction within the UK, within the UK market. Uh, and the intention and the direction to travel was always then to take the business uh, you know, beyond the UK borders and into uh, mainland Europe. And that was a you know, kind of a huge part of our uh, kind of business growth strategy, which is we, we never quite got that far. Uh, but um, but yeah, that was uh, that was Steel Scout in a, in a nutshell. So how did you get involved with Steel Scout? So I'd been working. So I'd worked for Tata Steel and its predecessor, Chorus, back between two thousand and six and two thousand and sixteen. Uh, I left to take a uh, position with Amazon. Uh, so pretty pretty cool position, opening warehouses in the Midlands and South Yorkshire. Uh, so um, you know, really enjoyed that uh, that role, and around about the period that I was hitting the eighteen month month mark with Amazon, I received a phone call from a chap called Matt Yates, who was the uh, managing director of Steel Scout, and he said, "Look, just want to know if you're interested in having a conversation about this thing that Tata, Tata Steel are doing uh, in conjunction with uh, Boston Consulting, uh, setting up a tech startup." So at the time. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't really that interested from the phone call, but yeah. I'm also a firm believer that you never turn down the opportunity to catch up with somebody. I'd, I'd known Matt from my past at working at Tata Steel. I had a lot of respect for him. I was like, you know, there's no harm in going, having a cup of coffee, at least learning a little, little, a little bit about what they're doing yeah. and, um, and, and finding out what that's about. So I went in for a cup of coffee. 20 minutes later, I walked out with a new job because yeah. <laughs> I was convinced. Yeah. Uh, Matt took me through the, uh, the two infant products as they were. They were essentially still prototypes at that stage. There was, you know, very few customers. You're probably talking fewer than 30 customers across both businesses at this stage was really really you know uh, kind of just been put in the water and uh, and yeah but I was I was sold on the concept I could really see the opportunity in the market for it and back then the steel it was obviously steel prices have gone on a bit of a roller coaster since but around 2016-2017 prices seemed to be in a fairly stable place you know, gradually increasing. Yeah. So again, it felt like the industry itself was starting to find a, a more stable footing. And uh, and yeah, so uh, I think I joined. Well, I did. I joined Steel Scout on the uh, just before the Christmas of 2017, and uh, the rest rest is history. You know, when with Steel Scout, I mean, obviously, like you said, the traction that you kind of gained massively when you was talking last time you was here was obviously the prices mm-hmm. were going, shortage of material. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good time for yourselves. Uh, that particular point, because it just made people change the way they were purchasing everything, I suppose, really. Well, people were struggling as well. You couldn't get yeah. stuck, could you? No, you still can't, can you, and on some products. But how do you... Obviously, there was a lot of like, people said 
when it happens you know everyone almost becomes an expert of thinking they've got an inside look at steel scan you hear people saying oh you know well we used to sell to them at you know six pound a meter and they used to sell it to the end user at five pound 25 mm-hmm. you know so i'm not surprised i mean what's the things you know what was it like because obviously everyone's got a perception afterwards and everyone goes well oh, we knew that one works it was yeah. you know people want to speak to an account manager they want to speak you know what, what do you say to those kind of people who have that kind of view it's it's really easy to take to, to be a naysayer of anything new particularly in a new business I think there's I'm potentially making a statistic up now but is you know I think I've heard that is it 95% of all startup companies fail within the first year it might even be more than 95% yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a huge number so it's really easy to turn around and look at a startup business and say that's gonna fail because you know what there's a 95% yeah, chance you're yeah. gonna be yeah. you're gonna be correct yeah. it's easy to do that's the difference with you though like a lot of startup business are bootstrapping so they've got no cash hmm. You had loads of cash. That, well, that is that, that is true. And we were, you know, we were bankrolled, and in, in in no in not a dissimilar way to a lot of London-based startups. You know, are, are you know they've got angel investors, uh, etc., or, or just big investors or corporate interests in those in those businesses when they first when when they first launch. I think looking at some of the specific pieces of criticism that I think some of the players in the market might have believed to be reasons why the Steel Scout business model didn't work. So, for example, the, the example you gave where, oh, well, I sold to Steel Scout at, you know, X price and they were selling it for, for Y price. The, the reality is, is that that probably reflected a, 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 not only a minority of the business that we did, but also a very short space of time back in 2018 when we were trying to get that business off the floor. And the reason we did... We, we took that particular stance. It, it, essentially, we weren't, we weren't selling an awful lot at, at, at a kind of a, a negative margin. We were doing an awful lot of business, essentially just giving the customer the price that the supplier was giving us. But a lot of that was we didn't have buying power at that stage. You know, so we weren't, at that point, you're still a small company. You want to be able to deliver this better experience for the customer, but also you need to make sure that your price is competitive. And in order to do those things, sometimes we had to make some commercial decisions around doing that. But once we'd achieved a scale and a size and we got our foothold in the market, by the time we came out of 2018, a a lot of those short-term growth tactics that we took, you know, we then started steering away from that and then moving more towards a, uh, you know, more towards a, a kind of a margin driven business model but even then we, we never planned for Steel Scout to make huge amounts of margin we knew that we were an intermediary in the transaction process between the buyer and the seller and particularly as we went into 2019 the, the steel price really started to be put under, pre- under pressure we started seeing you know hot roll coil was going for like sub 400 pound a ton and it's difficult to muscle your way on way in on somebody's um, in, into somebody's margin at that stage. So we designed, we developed that whole business model at that stage to say, well, look, we're going to be going through potentially a very long period of time when steel prices are going to be at historic lows. Therefore, we're going to make some assumptions around making very, very small margins. But in order to make the business work, that then means we need to process an awful lot of transactions. And then we focus then on trying to get in and trying to win as many customers in the UK as possible. And, but then it became very clear that in order to make that particular business model work, we'd have to we, we would have to move the business into mainland Europe because at that stage the tech that we were building was quite expensive to, to build and it was all built around automation. And if you're building a tech platform that's built on the concepts of 
automation and scaling and scaling fast, then you have to scale fast. And the reality is, is that the UK steel market is big, but it was it was never quite big enough for us to make that business model work. And and therefore, yeah, we had to then make that next big leap into into, into the into the European market in order to to get there. And as I said, we never quite got there. And, and that comes into the discussion point that we'll get into as to ultimately why Steel Scout stopped trading. But but yeah, I think from a... From so it, was a short, it sounds like it was a short-term kind of short-term pain to get on board as many customers as you could. Yeah, but, but, I think, but, but I think uh, the, the problem was is that when we took some of those short-term tactical decisions, it did, we, we, and we acknowledged that it had some impact in the market. You know, we upset some people in the market by doing that. That, and once you'd, once we'd established that reputation among some people, very difficult then to, to break, to, to kind of, um, to break that away. So we did see that there were lots of, uh, there were, I say lots of players, there were one or two players in the market that were, you know, reluctant to, to, to deal with us because they thought that's how we, how we behaved. But the reality also is, you know, we did have most of the decoilers and most of the independent steel service centers in the UK working with us either through Steel Scout Direct or through the Steel Scout Procure platform. And I think if you spoke with the majority of those buyers, uh, sorry, the majority of those sellers, I think they would acknowledge that actually, you know, we were doing business with them in a, you know, in a, in a fair and open way. We weren't going out of our way to undercut their prices. And especially as we went in, as we came into the kind of the pandemic or the, the post-pandemic era, I think that then became a real opportunity for us to demonstrate that value proposition to um to to the to the steel stockholders because before prices started shooting up and material became so um, scarce actually in the in the front half of 2020 there was a huge material surplus in the uk and we were actually finding orders for a lot of companies that they weren't finding from from anywhere else so i think we really demonstrated the value proposition in 2020 um, for two very different reasons. In the first half, because we were able to find suppliers' orders that they were struggling to find. And then in the, in the latter half of 2020, we were finding buyers' steel products that they couldn't find elsewhere. Yeah. So it was, a, you know, it was an exciting... 2020 was a really exciting time, um, a time for us. And as we already said, we, we came out of 2020 really thinking that we had uh, a huge opportunity to continue to grow in the UK market and, and really give ourselves the platform then to, to, to leap into, into new territories. If we, cause I want to get into a lot of these points that we've got listed down here, but if we just slightly go backwards, yeah. what, you still kind of at short term goals, I'm guessing by the time Tata pulled the plug on it really. Firstly, had you kind of achieved what you wanted to achieve? And if we kind of ignore the pandemic, were you on track, but what were, like the longer term goals, like what was the kind of process? Where did you want to get to? What were the figures that you wanted to be hitting and what did you want to be making? If you can share those kind of statistics or stats with us. Uh, yeah, I could share some of them. So um, if we look at the year, for, uh, we look at the financial year, April 2020 through to March 21, we had actually set up that plan for the 12 months back in November 2019. So we went into the pandemic with a plan that we had written probably three months earlier before anyone even knew that covid was a, yeah, was, was, a was a thing and i remember being fast forward to the end of march 2020 i actually remember being in a weatherspoons pub just around the corner from um, holborn station where our, where our office was in central london with my sales team pretty much writing right how can we make 
to, at the very least, let's try and make the, the Q1 plan or, or the original plan. Like, how can we make that work? Who can we go and speak to? What can we do in the market? You know, because we had a, a, you know huge aspirations to go and do field sales, for instance, in you know go out and see customers in 2020. Well, obviously none of that ended up happening, so we needed to take a different approach to the to the way that we that we did sales. So over the course of 2020, we were hugely successful. Every single quarter, we beat our you know revenue goals. We exceeded our margin plan, particularly in in the second half. of 2021 that actually uh, in 2020 that wasn't difficult because steel prices were going on the right so a lot of the um a lot of the things in the market helped us but also a lot of things in the market went against us so throughout 2020 credit insurance became a very very difficult thing um right across the metal sector Uh, so the availability of credit insurance the ability to increase our uh, tax deals credit limit with um, companies versus, and, and also our ability to, to get to, to get credit limits for the customers that we were selling to was very, very difficult because the whole market, in light of some of the wider things that had happened in the industry, the whole credit insurance market had taken a more dim view towards the steel sector. So that became a challenge for us. So you know, in, one, in one sense, it was a great year for us because everything went in our favour around People were working from home, steel prices started going in the right direction. But then on the other hand, we did have some real challenges that really um, put pressure on our ability to grow. And we overcame those and we ended 2020, as I said, from a growth perspective, pretty much bang where we'd intended to. From a margin perspective, way ahead of where we'd um, originally intended to. And then the aim for the next two years was going to be right let's break this let's let's break into mainland europe so we were looking at germany we were looking at uh, southern europe we were looking at the, the netherlands as new territories that we could go into supported by the infrastructure that uh, Tata steel already had in those parts um, in those in those territories in order to grow the steel scout product and then essentially get ourselves to the to the level of scale that we that we needed to get to, um, to to essentially drive enough revenue through the business so we could start essentially pay for our tech team that was the, that was the key for us was being able to hit the level of scale that we needed to to be able to afford our own tech developers once we were in that stage you've got sustainability and then once you get sustainability, then you can start thinking about returning on the original investments that um, that Tata had made uh, in the in the steel scout business. When you talk about challenges, I mean, obviously the industry is very much set in its ways. Sometimes I mean, for her, mm-hmm. the way they do, as much as kind of they've reinvented the sales through different processes to make higher margins. Like how how hard was it to get one stockholders? involved in getting on board with dealing with steel scout but then you know obviously you, the last time we spoke he was obviously doing a lot a lot the billboards around city mm-hmm. around on by industrial estates how hard was it to get say a family-run engineering business who's been used to picking up the phone and that's perhaps the way they've always dealt with business someone picking up the phone and taking the order how hard was it to get those people on board with a platform that is so out there really like obviously mm-hmm. everyone can see the the benefits of how e-commerce plays in the market and we've seen it working in other industry sectors but obviously we're dealing in an industry sector here where they struggle to embrace social media so it's it must have been hard to you know it must have been a massive challenge surely it it, it was a challenge especially in the early days when we were essentially relying on having a fairly inexperienced sales team based on in london 
smashing through cold calls to try and connect with these companies. There was there was definitely a disconnect at, at the beginning, which kind of really, uh, which we had to get our heads around. Actually, how are you going to break into this market? Was because it more when you say disconnect? Was it more having people who down? Obviously, in London, when you say blasting through calls, just the way they spoke to, to the to the customer. No, I, I think I think what you've got is that is that concept of you know you hire people who are trained and experienced in selling software or SaaS platforms, yeah. and what you're then trying to do is to is to hit a target of the a sector of the market which they're not used to that. What they're used to is they're used to getting a phone call from a steel stockholder, so they they want a you know, what's your price now? What's you know? Yeah. So I think that was a difficult concept to convey over the over the phone. Actually, we're not we're not selling you steel. We're we're trying to sell you the concept of the platform. It became a lot easier when we then started focusing rather than trying to use the cold call and use the outbound activity as a means to get that first order from a customer. When we when we pivoted towards actually let's use that call as a means to get a meeting with a decision maker at that business. That's when things really started taking off for us because that then meant that I could go or one of my colleagues could go in in the car. And once you then sat in a room with. Um, you know, a senior buyer or even a managing director and you kind of you know, back before social distancing I could literally you know, come really close to them get on their get on their laptop or on the computer terminal log them into Steel Scout and just and, and so they could see it and play around with it and you'd, you'd walk away from that meeting and they'd have you know, I'd make sure I would have saved Steel Scout um, on their brow on their browser yeah and it was on their bookmarks so once you've got that why wouldn't you use it at that stage? So if even if you're going out and buying, even if you can send an email out to 10 different suppliers and get prices back from 10 different suppliers, before you send that purchase order, why wouldn't you just go on to Steel Scout just, and just, to, just to check the price you know, before you place that purchase order? And that's where we found the great traction was, was when, as soon as people could re- realise how easy the platform was to use and the product was to use, it didn't necessarily change behaviors overnight so it didn't necessarily stop people from still sending their email out for a quote but as long as we were in the mix as long as we were getting interaction from those companies we were able to we were able to capture data we were able to capture intelligence and i think that was where the the, the real benefit came uh, was so a lot of it came when we kind of made that switch uh, you know rather than trying to sell rather than trying to do the steel sale selling the, the the product and the platform yeah and then the, the steel just sells itself because we knew especially by the time we got to 2019 we knew that we were in the right kind of ballpark with pricing and therefore it was just then about the technology and, and allowing the behaviors to, to to follow suit and as i said as we got into 2020 that became an even easier sell because so many steel um uh, buyers were forcing were, were forced into a situation where their teams either had to work from home or actually the managing directors were furloughing their steel buyers and taking on the steel buying themselves again. So yeah. we, we found an awful lot more um, uptake in the in the during the pandemic, which was which I was. Suppose which at was that good. point, then when the furlough is happening, you got, you, you're dealing with people who are a lot more direct, but they just want it quick. And they don't want to be ringing around five, six, seven stockholders. They just want they just want to place do the purchasing, get it done as quick as possible. So I suppose there's a different, coming from a different angle then with the top it, it person was a you're dealing with. It, it was a different angle. Because a lot of, if you if you class your minds back, particularly in that first two or three months of the pandemic, a lot of stockholders actually took the decision to shut their businesses down. Yeah. And and that, again, that's where we, where we found huge opportunities were uh, fabricators picking up jobs in the NHS, for example, uh, wanting to do 
you know, whether it be for Nightingale hospitals or even for other kind of smaller infrastructure activities that were required from a government level, and you know, companies not being able to find what they what they need on the market. So that was a that was a huge huge um, area of growth for us in the in the first, certainly in the first uh, three months of the of the pandemic. This podcast is sponsored by the UK Metals Expo. After the successful launch of this event in 2022, the UK Metals Expo will be back at the NEC in Birmingham on the 13th and 14th of September 2023. For podcast listeners, you can secure a 20% discount for booking a stand by quoting the Metal Guys Talk Business when speaking to the event organisers about booking. The UK Metals Expo is an industry event connecting the full supply chain from primary metal manufacture through supply chain, processing, fabrication, surface coating and all the way through to recycling, effectively, as they used to say in the old days, from melt to market. With full endorsement from the UK Metals Council, its trade members and other industry bodies, the show had great initial credentials and has the potential, in my opinion, to become a huge annual event in the UK, drawing exhibitors and attendees from across the UK and further overseas. With free-to-attend seminars taking place inside the show, it's definitely an event not to be missed by anyone with a career in or around the metal industry. We certainly enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing you in 2023. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. It sounds to me, from what you were just saying, that as much as it's a tech business, obviously, so really most tech businesses, you don't really want stock, which you didn't have. Mm -hmm. You don't really want the overhead of loads of people, which you clearly did have, especially with the development teams and the cost of that. And you're talking about going out there and sitting in front of customers, which seems to go against, in my view, what the business was about, because it's like an online business. It's not difficult to get at the top of rankings in the steel sector, because hardly anyone does keywords or optimising their website. People have still got HTTP websites, mm-hmm. they're not even encrypted. So it's not difficult for you to get to the top of the rankings. But I'm still interested in people choosing to use the platform, because as Michael alluded to, people are just used to buying the same way that they've always bought. And a lot of the people who've got decision-making power within businesses, purchasing managers particularly, been in the industry sector for a while. The newer people that would be more, you know, online savvy and would be more inclined to use your software might not have the ability to make those purchases. So again, how are you you trying to overcome that issue? Because to me, going and getting in front of customers and bookmarking and stuff is very heavily reliant on you doing it. So it's, it's not really that tech Mm -hmm. so i I really want to know what you know you're saying customers why wouldn't they use steel scale i can go to 10 suppliers and then i can just use steel scale but i still don't think there were or don't think there were enough so how were you kind of making sure that you could still keep the company seeming like a tech company rather than an online company that really you can just keep phoning up Mm -hmm. because obviously that that doesn't really work in my opinion with what the model was trying to do where it's almost let's get rid of the people Yes and no. I think we we'd acknowledged fairly early on that we needed to have people in the process that customers could and suppliers, so buyers and suppliers could speak to. So you know every um, every buyer had a personal account manager, but then every personal account manager would potentially have hundreds of you yeah. know c- customers working for them. So it was it was it was personal, but not 
so personal that... Do you think that was due to the industry you were dealing with, you had to have that approach? Yeah, I think so. I think you need to... And I think you need to... One of the things that we realised early on is that you can't... If you're going to dis... If you're going to disrupt the sector in particular, that's all well and good. So we were disrupting very much with the technology and the way that the business model was, and we were definitely dis- disruptive. And as you, as you as you guys are well aware, based on some of the some of the some of the kind of sound bites that you already um, flagged up. However, you know it does require you to I think sometimes in order to break through to some, to a lot of the larger you know some of those larger buyers who were very much set in their ways. No, we we did have to go and put you know we did have to put ourselves in in front of them because you win one of those companies, especially some of the companies, um, some of the larger engineering companies that you know will buy a significant amount of uh, amount of steel. You know, one or two of those companies could take us an awful long way yeah, on, our, on, account, on our game changer accounts. There were a lot of those game changer accounts, and you need to get in front of them. I, I don't I, I don't think that there was at the time, particularly in 2018, 2019, I don't think there was any other way of us winning those particular accounts because this is what they expect they they want to be won over they want to be convinced you know they want you to make the effort to, to go to visit them and we did that and it was really it, it was it was successful now what you know once you get to the level of size and scale that you need would we have been able to sustain that over a long period of time when customers want repeat visits all the time which you might see more in the steel sector well probably not so i think you know a lot of it was around then making sure that we had the right levels of engagement through the the, the digital channels afterwards um, around and, and that's kind of a bit that's more focused then around customer success strategy and then how you renew and, and how you get repeat business from those buyers so that was still very much digitally focused because as we said once we had got customers using the steel scout platform we could measure their level of engagement so we would know for example how many how often they would log in how many quotes they were putting through how many times they were doing if they were on steel scout direct how many comparison how often they, they, were they comparing prices how often were they basket in if were they basket in things but then not checking out etc so we could we could see all of that intelligence and then we could really focus our management of those clientels through that and as we discussed in the first podcast, you know, customers were then on that kind of spectrum of, you know, some customers still were still very traditional, set in their ways, and might never have gone on that full journey with us. Whereas there are other customers on the other end of the spectrum who, once they had started, they once, they, once, like once they, they'd really embraced it, and once they'd mm-hmm. use it for the first time, um, you know, we had a um, we had a company, a laser cutter based in based in Nottingham, and the steel buyer there, we could never get hold of him. You know, he, he just he literally did not want to speak to anybody. He was happy just using, you know, using the platform. We never received a phone call from him. It was just he would go through the SteelScout platform, company credit cards, paying online. He was just self-serving. And then on, on the other end, there was always one or two. There was always buyers on the um, on the other end of the spectrum who would need to be. You know, we had one or two buyers who wanted us to send them a written. Uh, kind of purchase order acknowledgement when they sent that through which we again we jumped through you know we kind of jumped to their beat for a little period of time but then after a while they were the customers that we started to move away from and offload because the cost to serve those customers with the margins that we were playing with just just didn't make sense to continue serving them so it then became more of a right let's understand the customer personas the the kind of the ideal customer profile that we're looking for with this particular in this particular market and after a while you can start to identify those companies particularly when we started to harness the power of social media platforms like linkedin for example 
um, you know, you could you could definitely you could pretty much draw a correlation between companies got a good LinkedIn presence versus their willingness to em- em- embrace with us and engage with us. So, you know, if we started pulling up cold call lists or engagement lists of companies where there's no website, there's no LinkedIn profile, you can't get email addresses or or, or anything more than a telephone number for the reception, then we would we would deprioritize those for cold calling because you knew that. You know, even if you managed to get through to a decision maker, the chances of you winning that company were tiny compared with, you know, the kind of the type of digital outreach and engagement that you could do with a company where the managing director he's on LinkedIn, you've got his email address. At that point, you can create, you know, a task list to and, and cadences to work through um, the sales process with them and have multiple touch points with with those businesses. So it just became then around really prioritizing the types of companies that we wanted to sell to. Who was easy to get on board? The customers or the stockholders? Because obviously there, you mentioned laser cutting companies where they're a bit more, they're obviously, they're at the front end a lot more, aren't they? So they're embracing even new technologies, the way they're going to be running the businesses. It's not just, you know, sticking patterns on a sheet now or on a tube and then just send it away. They're now looking at a lot of these laser companies now fabricating, making, you know, an actual part, aren't they? Or trying to sell into certain industries to actually... You know, maybe into the garden sector where they're dealing with B and Q directly for doing things. How how were what was the contrast of between the two? So stockholders were generally far easier to get on board because none of them wanted to miss out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and you you'd have, you so you'd have meetings with stockholders and they say, oh well, is uh, is my competitor on the corner on the um, on on the platform? So well, we're not really allowed to say, but you know, wink yeah. wink nudge nudge. Yep, they're they're on there and. You, you know, there's that kind of fear of missing out that you could, that you could, trigger with the stockholders, which meant that by and large we were able to be able to onboard most of the stockholders that we that we reached out to. However, if there was a, if a stockholder decided they didn't want to be anything to do with Steel Scout, then trying to convince them to move was pretty much impossible. So they were either, you know, if they were a yes, then they were in. If they were a no, then the chances of then convincing them later down the line to, to take part was really, really slim. Whereas with the buyers, they took more convincing because whether it be a managing director or a purchasing manager or a senior buyer, I think in a lot of companies they feel that they really they, they know their you know they know their market yeah. they know their area so almost an arrogance to it. Well, yeah, well, yes and no because I think to a certain extent they do know their, their area and I think what you, that's where the sale of Steel yeah. Scout then came into it, which was look, this isn't just about yeah. saying that we're going to find what, you. What I mean by that now? Like, some buyers are like, oh, I oh, know I get the best price on the market. I don't need your software to, to be doing this. You know, I oh, know when I ring up, they look after me. Mm-hmm. There's almost a fear of the job, isn't it? They're almost thinking, well, hang on a minute, this software then. It just if suddenly all my estimators can just log on and just cut it itself, I don't need a purchase manager because this platform allows me, you know, like if you were an MD looking, you've got five estimators there. If they, all of them can have a shortcut to steel scar on my laptop, yeah, don't need, don't need John. Yeah, and, we did, and, we, and we did, and we did often as many estimators either. Yeah, get rid of me five and take it down yeah. to one. So or we, two. we did, and we did see an element of that kind of turkeys voting for Christmas. Yeah, and, and even when you, even when we were able to arrange meetings or engagements with managing directors directly, they were often then reluctant to upset the apple cart with their buyers because in a lot of companies, the, 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 the person with the responsibility of, the, of buy-in usually has one or two other jobs that they do as well and they're actually quite powerful within the, the organisation. So that again, that was a barrier to, um, it was a barrier to growth, but it wasn't a barrier that prevented us from hitting our growth milestones. So we were aware of those companies 
and usually we could spot them a mile off. If they were going to be really resistant, then at that point, it's the same with any type of sale. You, you then prioritise the types of companies that you're going to, um, you're going to spend energy uh, on courting. And if you start to pick up those red flags that actually these guys are going to be really resistant to any form of, um, of change, then you know, clearly they're not, they're not ready for, for something like, like Steel Scout. This podcast is sponsored by Amron Architectural. Amaran Architectural are a company that I've been working with for nearly two years now and the business has grown rapidly over that time. Um, Very experienced staff, uh, very knowledgeable within the architectural interior design space. Um, The ethos of the company is to kind of inspire choice, engage uh, and work with metals and meshes of all different types. They work with classic woven meshes all the way through to bespoke profile cladding panels. And uh, you know the experience of the guys there is, I would say it's it's right up there in the um, in the UK. They've developed a full range of systems for all aspects of internal and external environments, from bespoke ceilings, gantry systems, specialised partitions to large external facade systems, and, and pretty much everything in between. Um, I think the thing that strikes me about these guys is um, they're they're interested in clients' ideas. They like to talk to clients. They like to know what's happening and develop the systems that fit with the with the trends, but also the design requirements um, of the architects in the industry and the and the clients. So, yeah, a company that definitely going places. It's great to have them as a as a sponsor of the podcast. Um, and if you're looking to create those exciting internal and external designs, then um, these are the guys to talk to. I think companies as well, like we know ourselves here, and I know when I set up, you know, with my dad, the previous business I had, you know, when you ring up a company and you're brand new and they don't know you and you're in a sector, especially in a sector where there's not really new market entrance, it's, it's not normal for people to enter this market sector because of the prohibitive kind of costs. Like, they don't want to buy from you straight away. You need to almost trade for two to three years to become like, oh, they're actually part and parcel of the, you know, of the industry. So I think the the shame really for you guys is you've done a lot of that graft. You've done the first couple of two or three years. You've done a lot of the marketing. You've got your name out there and you started to get some good traction from what you said in the first podcast. So... You know, and the market's good as well. Just yeah, I know. Market. Like you were, you, yeah. yeah, you're booming and booming. It's, it's like the time. This is the time, it's isn't it? So, the tap man didn't even go around people's houses to pick up the stuff. Is it that right. low? You couldn't be bothered. But yeah. So, so why, why did they pull the plug? So, in a, you know, in a nutshell, it was. We, we had yes. So, you know, in a nutshell, the the long and short of it was that Steel Scout no longer fitted the. I think strategic direction that Tat Steel was going in, and what I mean by that was, as we got into the latter part of last year, and it was fairly, you know, it was fairly public knowledge because um, it was it was announced through a press release that Tata Steel's intention was to um, operate its European business in a different way uh, by essentially separating the uh, the UK and the mainland Europe businesses. So just at the point that we are getting to a position at Steel Scout that within our five-year plan we needed to move into Europe, Tata Steel is taking the decision that actually a Europe, a UK and European integrated business approach wasn't going to be the, the, the future for um, for that company and, and essentially that, that made the decision 
you know, for for Tata Steel on our behalf. So to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter. I don't think there was anything that we could have done to change that because essentially at that stage, you're, you know, still a very small startup company, but you're still you know, getting cap- getting caught up in the sweeping current of a much, much larger yeah. corporate restructuring. And the reality was, is that by the time you take that corporate restructuring into account, actually having this small startup business that, that we had um, at Steel Scout, you know, didn't really, you know, fit with the, the, the model, you know, as it was going to be once Tata, Tata Steel have, have finished this journey that they're on. So uh, we, you know, we did look at several options and, uh, of whether or not there might be interested buyers in the market or investors in the market who might want to come in and, um, and help us to continue on that journey. But unfortunately, with the, with the time that we had in order to do that, you know, we, we, we weren't able to find uh, somebody to come in and, and uh, replace what Tata Steel um, had, been, had been providing us with. And as we said on the first podcast, if you're going to do this, then you need to do it properly. And it became very clear that we weren't able to do it properly going forward. And, and therefore, we had to make the difficult decision to wind the business down. And we wanted to do it in as, in as controlled a manner as possible. Uh, you know, as possible. So that new, that decision point came through at some stage in uh, February this year. And then by the end of February, we had stopped trading in order to then give us a couple of months to be able to really wind the business down, fulfill all of the deliveries that we that we had outstanding, pay our suppliers, get the money back from, um, you know, get, get payment from our customers, etc. Uh, and then there was a, a second huge piece of work that I was involved with up until the end of May, which was the uh, transitioning of some of the Steel Scout technology back into parts of Tata Steel's business. Um, so there were not not all of the technology, but certain parts of it were, um, were, were were really relevant to what Tata Steel want to do with their digital uh, strategy in the future. So you know, I was spending the last couple of months really helping Tata essentially retrofit some of the technology that we that we had built um, so they can then go ahead and use that in, in the future, uh, which in, in some ways leaves a some somewhat of a leg- legacy uh, of of Steel Scout, but but yeah, essentially, you know, the 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 decision, I think I think for Tata was the right decision. As disappointing as it was to find that we had to wind the business down, I I don't think that there was a future for Steel Scout in that new landscape of um, Tata Steel. Do, um, do you think we'll see it come back? Because obviously, a lot of the time, these corporate companies, not so much with an e-commerce, because this is like the first time, but you see it many times where people try and enter a market sector. And they don't, for whatever reason, sometimes the market conditions aren't the right time. Five years later, they try again and they try again and eventually they either crack. Do you think we'll see it come back or...? Yeah, I think that there's no way that you won't... Yeah, you, you, you can't... The industry won't resist that migration towards online selling, digital platforms, digital technologies forever. You know, that essentially somebody will come in and... And and do that, and you know we've all we, we've all seen it. Um, you know we've, we all went through the the the, the early tech the, the tech boom in the early two thousands. You know most of those companies that floated no longer no no longer exist, but they were the they were the forerunners to so the to a lot of the huge companies that come today. And I and I do think that one of the Steel Scout was the first I think st- um, startup to come in and do e commerce slash e-procurement in the steel and metal sector in a really serious big way i'd like to believe that other people will come behind learn from what we did well learn from what we did 
not so well, and then identify uh, actually here's an opportunity to be able to build something for the for the future. So uh, there's no doubt in my mind that somebody else will come in um, behind and, and and do that. Uh, I suppose the, the question for me is whether that becomes essentially an aggregator pa platform like Steel Scout was, which deals with many suppliers uh, across the UK supply chain in order to service the maximum number of buyers, or whether it becomes more of a individual stockists trying to find, trying to kind of carve their own niche out in the um, in the e-commerce sector. Um, I, I, you know, I think long term, I, I think you need to have an aggregator. Uh, in order to really make make it work, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see because a number of steel uh, stockists and uh, larger steel suppliers are over the course of the last year have launched digital offerings. So I'll be look, I'll be keeping a close eye on those uh, from afar. Uh, to uh, what would you say to those people who've kind of gone off steel scout tried it and they never like never made it work? I suppose is the way that some people would look at it. You know, for them to be going into it, you know, what what do you say to those? Because I think I think in the industry, there's people who are almost sadly wanted to see it fail because of the way that 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 business is run with account managers, business development managers, which has always been what the industry's ever known, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think as an industry, sometimes with things like this, I mean, we see it smallly with video interviews that we thought it'd just be like bang, those people would almost em embrace it, but you have people who almost stuck in I suppose they're stuck in the ways aren't they this yeah. is how we do things this is the way we want it and I imagine that must have been a massive part of the headache at Steel Scout. he's trying to he's trying he's, maybe it's like every industry but he's trying to get people to embrace mm. something new isn't it like it it's almost Obviously, how you train people isn't it of how to I don't know how, I don't know how you really yeah, say it but I suppose it's like the banks isn't it at the moment you go into the bank they don't want to serve you they don't want to give you your money you have to almost they're almost training you now to get away from actually this is when you go do your banking now you pay your check and use that machine you want your money you pay out that you want to do this it's almost you're in almost thinking why can't you just bloody do it you know but it, you're you're in the same way really where you're almost getting you're trying to retrain a whole industry of and both but both sides the stock is the way that they're going to sell to you the end user the way they're going to start purchasing steel it's almost do you think there's a because the way I'm looking at this and the way I thought about this years ago when I was looking at exactly the same thing, people have all looked at it in the market. We've all been thinking about it. But to me, it seems like you're right about the aggregator being able to connect the network or connect the, the marketplace. But I'm looking at this and thinking, if you have a big company or a decent-sized company that's got a lot of stock, a broad range of stock, a distribution company, that's also well-connected with a lot of mills, they can supply from their own central stock online, whether it's under a different brand name or what. But then they can become the aggregator because essentially what someone's going to do longer term is going to happen. You're going to get like an Amazon of the metal sector, aren't you? Where you've got like a master distribution company that's doing all these line items. Companies can come on and buy from them anyway. They can buy online or they can buy the traditional method. But also because they're giving them that business, they can just bolt on the other parts. So I'm dealing with this mill for this. I'm dealing with this mill for this. You don't need to go to those mills direct. We've already got the funnel here and you can buy through ourselves. If you want to buy, I don't know, your welding consumables, you can. If you want to buy your PPE, you can. And they just start tagging on all the ancillaries mm -hmm. around the stock. But the stock that they don't do, they can buy from other people like what you were doing with Steelscape. But do you think it would suit someone better 
in doing it that way rather than what Steelscape did where they didn't have any distribution, everything was being done third party. Whereas Amazon, they've got warehouses all over the shop. So obviously they're not doing it wrong <laughs> because it's working for them. They're huge. So maybe was Steelscape doing it wrong? Do you need central distribution? Do you need stock? And then do you need to bolt on? I suppose the problem with that approach is, you know, you need you needed you needed deep pockets to do what we were doing. But if doing you've already got it, you're a company that's already got all this sat on the shelf. Potentially, but I think then you need the realization that they're a mill, aren't they? So I think I think we you talked about distribution companies. Mm, but so a distributor like Decapo, for instance, they've yeah. got a really good website, haven't they? You're looking at Amari Maps, basically, aren't you? But there's like one of those where you've got 300 lawn items, and you can just you can dis- you've got distribution centres all over the country, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So they can get it out to market quickly. But I'm just what I'm trying to say is, would this work better as a distribution company that bolts on and aggregates, or, or your methods? So it doesn't sound like it fails. I don't, I don't think there's so I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. I think there's a I think the Steel Scout approach and method will work for somebody mm-hmm. if they want to come in and do that again. It's just understanding that the but particularly if you want to play in mild steel, let's take the way the market is at the moment. Yeah. It'll settle back down. The the margin opportunity within mild within mild steel in particular is going to be going to be quite small. And therefore, if you really want to make a business like Steel Scout work, you probably need to move faster than than we did at Steel Scout. Actually, moving into the more ancillary products, as you said, where yeah. where the margin opportunity is going to be um, is going to be higher, and also moving further down the value chain where the uh, where the margin opportunity is going to be. Um, is going to be better as well. So I think the Steel Scott approach can definitely work. However, and I'm sure there's many of your listeners who are actually part of um, steel stockholding groups, then you know that isn't then to say, well, actually, if you're a part of a steel stockholding group, that you shouldn't then go and do a digital offering. However, if I was them, I would do a number of things first. So number one, have you got the distribution capability in place. So have you got the distribution capability? What's your delivery what's your delivery reliability and your performance like? Get those things right first. Because if you're able to deliver customer satisfaction, so the customer wants something, they receive what they want, the quality that they, that they expect it to be at on the day that you promised. If you can deliver those things first and then give the customer a digital e-commerce experience to go with that, that's a really powerful thing that you can you can deliver, and then over time you can actually significantly reduce your cost to serve. Because if you're a, especially if you're a large steel distribution company, if you're able to, if you've got strong buying power, you can command a competitive price in the market. You can deliver on time, and you can deliver quality that customer customer is expecting. Then you can then afford to put a e-commerce solution in front of those customers, and dramatically reduce your cost of serving them because you won't need account managers or as many account managers because if you get in the service right yeah, you don't need account managers to deal with all of the problems of complaints that you might get otherwise so I think that's the key you know, that, that's the key for any business before you start spending thousands of pounds on a website and an e-commerce platform or even get going on LinkedIn and trying to engage with people get the basics right first because I think that's still a huge problem in the industry is, is just getting those basics right, being, you know, being able to deliver a reliable service into customers, get that bit right first, and then think about the digital stuff, would be my recommendation to a, 
you know, to a, an, either an uh, whether it be an independent or a, or, a, or, a, or more of a group. This podcast is sponsored by Anglo Stainless. Anglo Stainless are a stockholder of pipe fittings and flanges based in the UK. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Anglo Stainless for well for many years actually. Uh, I've experienced the quality of their materials and service firsthand with um, thousands of items in stock from low-pressure BSP all the way through to high-pressure forge fittings as well as butt weld, hygienic, gaskets, pipes, valves and flanges to suit. They're a great place to find the products you need all in one place. They've got a really experienced team supplying products across the UK and also overseas. But for more details, check out the podcast show notes or give them a call. Uh, They come well recommended from me and will be a great addition to anyone's supplier network. Order with confidence from the team at Anglo Stainless. But now, let's get back to the podcast. So you must have thought about it. Look, you've, you've seen the inside track on this, and you're obviously very, very passionate still about the business, obviously, because mm-hmm. you've only, only just really, really mm-hmm. just left, haven't you? So could you do this on a smaller budget? It seemed like quite a heavy cost base to me at the top. There's a lot of people there. Then you've got all the tech team behind the scenes. And again, I think they were based in London. So I'm guessing that they were not cheap to have these, you know, this is a dev team. Could you reduce the cost down significantly and still do it? Did you think, oh, well, actually, I'll have a punt at doing this myself? It crossed my mind as to whether there was a opportunity to do it. I think, yes, the, the answer is you could try and operate a smaller scale digitally facing business with a smaller cost base the the tech itself might not be as scalable i think would be one of the difficulties that you would face unless you are then able to invest in and maybe find some uh, offshore um, kind of developers to you know, so if you go into um, if you Outsource development to uh, companies in Eastern Europe and things. So there's, you know, uh, countries like um, Hungary, Lithuania, Latvia have got really, really strong tech hubs there where um, where where they're building um, that type of thing. So I think if you if you're doing it in that regards, then then yeah, you can go go away and and, and do it. But I still think you probably need a decent lump of capital behind you mm. to go and do it properly and then you de- and then you need to tackle the problem of well how are we going to make money from it so are we going to take are we going to are we going to trade if you want to trade then that means you need a hell of a lot of capital yeah. or you need or an access to a line of credit are you going to take a commission well a commission's all well and good but again that comes with difficulties um, getting that through or you're going to sell this software on a license which again brings up brings up a whole other host of challenges because then you need to convince somebody that they need to pay for the software that you develop that you're developing which if you're doing it at a, on a lower cost base you're then trying to convince them that your lower cost base technology is as good if not better than what maybe steel scout was which we were given, which we were allowing people to use free of charge. Like, no, no, we were still, yeah. you know, we were yeah. because, because we were taking money through commissions and through uh, and through small margins. So, uh, you know, it, it would one of the reasons I, I thought about, but then veered away. Even the idea of going away and doing it is because all of those questions would need to be answered. And actually, I think it, the the market probably needs a little bit of time without Steel Scout before somebody can then come in and almost occupy that space straight away because one of the one of the barriers to selling in that particular market for anybody entering the market now would be well 
how are you different to Steel Scout? Steel Scout came and went. What, what are you going to do differently? And you know, why should I invest time and effort in using your technology if in another three years' time the same thing happens to you that happens people, to Steel Scout? People wanted, you must have been ringing around your customers when you were saying, look, we're going to close this. And you must have had people going, there must be so people who are disappointed about it oh, yeah, and sure. thinking, well, we haven't got another solution. So, you know, what, what are they going to be doing there? Just going back to the traditional method. So we were, um, and we actually helped a lot of our customers, uh, you know, we were, because we wanted to make sure that we created as, or we caused as, as minimal amount of disruption as possible. So we actually did help some of our customers and said, look, you know, here are, you know, two or three suppliers that we were using to fulfill your your materials here's the contact names and we just tried to be as helpful as possible with some of the buyers when when we decided to that we needed to move up to the market because i think at that stage that's the best thing you can do is to kind of leave on you know you want to try and leave a, a positive impression with 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 the customers that that dealt with us and that was a real key focus for us was making sure that when we exited that we did it in the right way when we still speak to people the consensus is that this didn't work because customers weren't ready for it. However, when we talk about that, everyone's got this kind of almost, oh, well, in 10 years' time, in 10 years' time, it'll be a different marketplace. I mean, I disagree. I think people are ready for this now. They buy online, don't they, as, you know, um, as a business-to-consumer, B2C transaction. So I think it's ready. I think for it to work, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. is I would imagine when you talked about profiling your, your customers, there was a certain profile of person, of whether that's age, um, education, whatever it may be, there'd be a certain profile. When you hit that profile, you're like, bang, these, the, your conversion rate would have been so high. But I think, you know, when I look at people I was selling to, there have been in businesses for a long period of time, buyers don't really move in the industry, and they're stuck. There's, it, it's going to take a while for, for that for those positions to change hands really. I think we're almost in a bit now where you need younger people coming into the industry, whether that's through stockholding or whether that's through engineering. And for those people, the way you kind of, when we talk off camera, when we're talking to people who are in the kind of mid twenties, early twenties, the way that they interact and communicate is completely different to the way that we do it, who are in our thirties and above. It's getting the young, the younger generation in it. And I think once that come, comes in, these new, Technologies, new platforms, the way we do things will change. Mm. But at the moment, I don't know if that's what customers want. I don't, I don't know. Some, obviously, some do, but there's a lot who kind but of. You know better. Do customers want this? Yeah, I, I think so. I think to go back and answer that, um, or to clarify the, the statement or the comment that I made around now not being the right time for somebody else to come in, I think that's only because I think you need to allow the dust to settle on Steel Scout itself as a concept. I think before going in and trying to almost sell the same concept again. Um, although if somebody's got a slightly different version of that concept, then there's there's no way that I wouldn't discourage anybody from kind of dipping their toe in the market to see whether or not there's a there's a there's an audience there uh, for it. But I think you know is the market ready for it? I think yes is the answer. However, I agree. How, how you know? However, there will you know there will be there is still resistance out there to to it. That that there's no doubt about that. The, the the difficulty is you never you can't really predict when the the this 
the sector on mass is going to be ready to to move towards that. You know, the thing that the thing that will shift the entire market won't necessarily be the demographic of mm-hmm. of managing directors. You know, if you look at some examples of you know companies, look at Zoom for instance. Who at Zoom thought that Zoom was going to be as huge as it was? You know. 24 months ah, ago which, look, uh, look, something external factors actually pushed it in in that direction what's currently happening in the metal sector at the moment you've got the that's the thing that's why it's a killer because it's like you've got those external factors so, now so yeah but so, so so those external factors are there for somebody to obviously it's not going to be steel scale but the, those external factors are there right now for somebody to experiment with a business model, if if they if they wanted to, um, but but likewise, once the market settles back down again, actually customers or potential um, customers will have a very clear memory of what twenty twenty slash twenty one was like for prices, for availability, for just the roller coaster volatility nature of the of the market, and that in itself, I think, will present an opportunity for somebody to come in and maybe offer some you know, you know something that customers can can embrace so you never really know what that thing is going to definitely this is look i'm like two minds because i see it from when i was sat on the desk some orders are won through that personal touch of being able to one have that strong relationship with both your customers and if you're doing a back-to-back where you've got strong relationships and sometimes you don't sometimes you win an order through having the chance that you couldn't do online if that makes sense Sometimes at the same, I'd like to disagree, I'm agreeing as well, you're right. But sometimes you've got a great relationship with someone, you lose the order, you find out you lost it on like two pence a meter, and you just think, come on, mate, I've been doing business with you for five years. So I think if you've got the best price, because a lot of it's price driven, isn't it? As much as service is key. It's an interesting one. It's it's how you you chat. I just think the industry of just, it's, it's like, it, it will obviously happen. There's gonna there's gonna be a play because it's just it's just the natural it's just the natural way it will go, won't it? It's just the resistance yeah. seems to be coming from the companies themselves. Mm. It's just like we don't we don't really want this because well, it's what your, it's what your business. If you look on say a lot of stockholders' websites, say they advertise of how many years' experience they've got with their sales teams. It's everything you've built your business on is having an experienced sales team who've got strong relationships with their customers, understanding the customers' needs, and making sure they've got that personal touch and quality and service. Mm-hmm. And, a, and an e-commerce platform, they almost feel like they're, they're not the same beliefs as that they have as a business. I would imagine it's probably, it's probably a hard one, where they want people, they want their staff to be speaking to the customers, understanding what they're wanting, understanding what the projects they're working on, and winning business and quoting. Mm-hmm. That's just the way the industry's just been made up, hasn't it? This is almost taking that away from that kind of model. As soon as someone goes away, comes completely out of their comfort zone, yeah. the barriers come up and you and they stay away. But, but that's why I think it needs to be a, and that's why I'm really uh, my advice to anybody wanting to do it is really like, is your service all? Mm. Is your service there? Yeah, because I can, right. so I can guarantee, like, and I'm, I'm not going to name drop particular stockholders, but I know one particular service centre who are renowned in the industry for the good service levels. You know, pretty much. Day one for day two, uh, you know, delivery quality is really great. We we struggled every time we spoke to a customer of theirs on Steel Scout to actually offer them offer a, you know, a, a kind of a, a competitive comparison, and you know, the price for a lot of those buyers the, the, the price wasn't important. You know they knew they were going to get, um, you know they knew they were going to get the, mm-hmm. the Galv or the CR four from that particular supplier. 
if they order it today, they're going to get it tomorrow. They know what the quality is going to be. And it was too much of a risk for them to take, for them to go for kind of a new company. And I think establishing that reputation in the market is really, really important. Yeah, stuff, yeah. You know, I, I, I look back maybe to like the early 2000s when I, I remember thinking in, in the early part of November that the ship has sailed for me to all, for me to take a punt on ordering things online for Christmas delivery. Mm. Like I remember that, like that's like less yeah, than, that's like, that's like what, yeah. 50, say 15 years ago. Yeah, I wouldn't, but by the end, by the, by the time November rocked around, I'd be re- really reluctant. You fast forward to Christmas just gone, I was placing orders on the 23rd of December, knowing that they would arrive on Christmas Eve. And but that doesn't come overnight. That, no, no. That, but that's what I was trying to say earlier. You know, when I was using the banks as, mm. as, a, as, a, as a thing, you've all, you're almost been trained. Like you know, you're almost been trained. So that's the way you do things now. Because mm. I'm, I'm like from last year. I mean, I was doing online spends anyway. But now my spending habits are completely. I don't even do a food shop. No, I won't go and walk around to a supermarket. Now I'll just get Hello Fresh. I'm just like right, bang, get it in. There's my taste for the week. That's just the way I'm doing things. Mm-hmm. That's completely changed. But that's come through almost. You've almost been trained down that route, if you, if you know what I mean. And that's what I was trying to say to the banks. They're all, soon you won't have banks in high streets. There'll be just you no know, point. You'll just have terminals, and that's the way you'll do your banking. Yeah. And it'll probably be a cashless society, so it'll be, it'll, all these other things that do it will be pointless. But to do this to be successful in steel, you almost need that part where you, the people are getting trained to go, well, this is actually this is the new way we're going to do things. Because otherwise, what you're trying to do is change a whole business or department, and it just it's hard to do that. So, Nation, nationally, isn't it? I suppose you were you were selling quality products, basically low margin mm-hmm. products, typically pile and buy, sell them cheap. That's the old mentality. So why why didn't you go for less price sensitive products more quickly? Why didn't you start pushing away from? You've got your bedrock. We're starting this. We're developing this. It wouldn't attack to me, and I might be being really critical here. You could have got someone sat in a room for a month and they could have coded 10 to 15,000 products, mm. the niche products in different grades, more harder to find products that are out there in the marketplace. You could have got those inquiries and you could have made margin on them. Because mm. it seems to me, and again, I might be being harsh, but it's like you're competing with people, you're buying from people who are selling cheap, you're able to buy from them and make a margin. So do you think if you'd have diversified your, your portfolio more quickly, that Tatu would have then looked at it and been like, well, actually, because money talks, doesn't it? If you can drive yourself to being a business that's funding itself quicker, mm-hmm. all of a sudden those kind of more corporate, well, we're going to split the business between, you know, that, that, that disappears. If you're making money, that, that, that headache goes. So would that have been a better strategy to diversify faster and make more margin? I think, yeah, I think if, you, if you're going to, if you were to list out the whole kind of what would you have done differently. differently then I think moving into the more diversified higher margin products uh, faster more aggressively would definitely be one of those things that I would say we try would, would it have essentially allowed us to swim against the current of you know big corporate strategy changes i'm Probably not i'm not i'm not too not. sure uh, however yeah so but, but yeah definitely we should have moved into that part of the reason why we didn't move as quickly we, our first attempt at diversifying just moving it very much into going in for stainless steel aluminium uh, products 
ended up being quite problematic for us. We, that, that was a much more difficult market to crack than we thought it was going to be. And it actually left us really open to companies or even fraudsters trying to abuse that because all of a sudden you were listing you know, products that were worth thousands of pounds per, per ton. And that, that then caused an issue for us without having to realize all of a sudden actually there's, you know, there's a, there's an, we're open to potential abuse here and therefore we needed to spend an awful lot of time on really putting in place much tighter controls around you know, kind of customer flags, customer flags, account setups. You know, even taking a, even taking credit card payments didn't become, you know, weren't an entirely safe thing when you're starting to play in that particular part of the market. And I think that then, I think initially then made us take a step back, focus a little bit more on milestone and, and consolidating the market and getting us getting our growth and focusing on growth in that particular market in particular. In particular. Surely, that, surely those orders must be big as well. Yeah. They're not going to be small orders. No. They're not going to put big orders on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, I think, and, I think that, and I think that was the other draw of, of Milestone in particular is because the, we were able to shift an awful lot of volume. So then being able to articulate that back up into a corporate entity like Tata, which, which talks in tons rather than talks in you know pounds yeah. people are aware of you a lot more as well aren't you i mean really when you're in that kind of stainless aluminium and yellow metals i know it seems silly but there's a lot of people who won't know some of these steel guys of your tatters i mean obviously they know of her the name but really when you're talking to your steel stockers they know that brand they're probably buying directly off your mill already so i suppose it was just quicker successes I yeah absolutely and you know we we had expertise we had people working for us like myself, like Steve, as you mentioned, Richard, uh, who kind of worked in that industry. So it just made sense for us mm. to be like, let's get this product working in a sector that we know is far easier then to measure success when you know the industry. But yeah, for sure, I think, you know, if you were to rewind back maybe three years, then, you know, would we put a strategy in place that moves us into, you know, the more differentiate, differentiated niche products sooner, then yeah, yes, probably. Uh, I'm still not convinced that it would have ended up with a yeah. huge different result for, for what Steel Scout was, because as I said, I think the, the decision that led to Steel Scout closing wasn't because of the success or failure of the, the Steel Scout business yeah. model itself. It was more about where that business sat in the overall strategy of what um, the, the, the kind of the corporate entity was was looking to do in the future. And I think, you know, in those instances, there's, there's very, you know, even if you were, yeah, even if you were in a, in a more sustainable profit-making position, it might have been easier to sell us, but mm. I don't think it necessarily would have made the decision any different um, for, for, for Tata in terms of, yeah, this, this no longer fits with where we want to be in the future. Well, look, thanks for joining us. It's really nice having you back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry to hear you kind of disappearing from the sector, but I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Yeah, I think I said at the start, it, it seems like it was a shame. It does seem like with this, they'd done all the graft, they'd done the hard work, and really, if they could have just carried on, there was massive opportunity with what's just happened in the market sector. And I think it's just a case of Tata's internal setup was changing, uh, and they had to pull the plug on it. And I think, yeah, it'd be, it would have been interesting if Tata hadn't had to make that decision. I just wonder where. Steelscape would have been by this point. I don't know what your thoughts are on it, Mike. Yeah, obviously, it's a shame for the people who were involved who lost their positions. It always, always is on that side. Is it a shame for the industry? Um, I think there's a lot of people who are probably pleased that they've come out of it, really. You know, from the people we spoke about when we had them on 
the first pod and the, you know, some of the people who was uh, questioning, you know, us promoting it at that particular time, uh, that, you know, that won't be sad. I think there's a lot of what people get concerned about in our industry is how people collect data and become more powerful on the back of using distributors at all types of levels, not just the big groups, but also, you know, your, your 10 million to 15 million pound stockholder and smaller who have niches where data has been collected about the usage in the UK and the price points at that point. And I think, you know, when information is getting collected, not just in particular one sector, but as a whole, and that's both steel, stainless, all the products and things going, then it, it can that data can obviously create, uh, you know, can, can change the way that, big organisations approach a market sector and how they and how they come into them. So that from that side of view it's it's a it's a pretty dangerous dangerous tool when you've got someone completely independent who's using the distributors. And mm. then that then scales not just in the UK market, but also across Europe, doesn't it? Then the whole industry changes. Um so yeah, I'm not sure really. I think kind of in a way, it's a bit of a blessing that there are they're not in it from that side because I think I think there's the industry's not, in my opinion, in stockholding distributing metal for an independent e-commerce system. I don't think the industry's ready for it. Yeah. I think people having their own, and you've seen groups who are implementing their own e-commerce who are getting good results at levels of selling good margins on offcuts and things like that. Obviously, you've seen people do eBay shops, but that's advanced now onto like an e-commerce platform. That's fine, but you're in control of that and you're in control of your own data. Having a neutral in it who's looking at the whole industry, not just what they're giving you, but the whole, I think that's pretty dangerous. Yeah, well, it could be. I mean, there's going to be a lot more of it. We were with Fractree a couple of weeks ago. Their pod will be coming out in a few weeks' time. Um, again, slightly different kind of setup because it was more machining. Obviously, we were speaking with Matt Source as well. And there's a couple of other big things that are on the boil that haven't kind of been released at the moment where we're talking to people about what's going on. So I don't see these things as going away. I think there's going to be more of them, but I think there will be a split between these aggregation style sites where they are, as you say, independent um, and they're kind of using the network to supply versus some of the, the bigger boys effectively building their own platforms that it'll be interesting to see if they then aggregate as well and they, they kind of back-to-back yeah. -back and buy. It's just each each one has their own story, doesn't it? And you can have your own view of the way it's done. Um, and, and then it goes from there, doesn't it, really? It's one of those things that I think probably like most people, they go through moments where they think, oh, this is what's needed. And they have moments where they're like, oh, I ain't too sure. And it's it's where at that particular time when it's been sold to you or you're looking at it's how how it suits isn't it mm -hmm. well look thanks for uh tuning in listening to this podcast sorry it was a day late being released we just um forgot to do the intros and outros so i couldn't release it on time but um cheers to the sponsors for the pods amaran architectural anglo stainless and the uk metals expo um, and we'll be back on track with the podcasts next tuesday cheers for listening